Mark 13 begins with Jesus talking about the temple. And not long before this, this actually all kind of takes place in the last week of his life. And not long before this, he had actually gone into the temple and he had turned the tables in the temple. And he called out the injustices taking place there and the way that it it had become uh, a den of thieves. We've done several teachings on that and some of what was going on there and why that was significant that you can go back to. We're not going to get into that today, but not long after that moment. Uh, he finds himself probably right outside the temple, right near the temple, and he's talking to his disciples, and they're talking about how great the temple is and how beautiful it is, and this is what he says. He says, do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Which, we're talking about an absolutely, absurdly large structure when it comes to Herod's temple. The way they rebuilt this thing, it was absolutely large. And the temple was everything to so many people. It meant everything. But in AD, uh, in in, in AD uh, 70, the, the year 70, the temple was destroyed because, of course, when Jesus says that something's going to happen, obviously it does happen, uh, everything he says comes to pass. But the thing that's so fascinating about the whole thing was it was actually ordered not to be destroyed. So Titus was the commander of the army uh, in Rome that he would later become emperor. And he told their soldiers as they raided the temple to, uh, you can attack the temple, seize it, but do not destroy the temple itself. It was to be seized but not destroyed. You can actually read about this in some of the accounts of the temple that Josephus wrote. And what happened was a battle broke out in the temple between the temple guards and the Roman soldiers. And during that battle, a fire broke out and in the inner court of the temple. And what happened was one of the soldiers grabbed a torch and threw it through this door. And this door was made of solid gold. Uh, and, and a fire then broke out in the sanctuary. And some of the soldiers uh, were trying to put the fire out, and Titus, the commander, kept telling them, put it out, put it out. We cannot destroy this temple. We are not here to destroy this temple. So he said, we need to contain the fire and put out the flames. But then there there came this moment, and history records this, when all of a sudden Titus' soldiers just began to completely disregard their leader, which is really scary for them because he eventually became emperor of Rome. And the emperors of Rome weren't always the nicest people to... to, uh, disregard. But anyway, they did. They disregarded what he said. And so then the gold that the temple was filled with began to melt. And it even got between the bricks of the temple. And they actually, seeing how much gold was there, they began to destroy the temple so that they themselves could actually get all of that gold. So brick by brick, they destroyed it. And they removed the gold that had gone in between the stones. One thing that was actually recorded of this account was of the soldiers, because of their hatred for the Jews, they just didn't care, and their desire for riches, the soldiers disregarded the orders of their general. And again, the the temple was everything to the Jews. Thus, I assume, is the reason they probably fought the soldiers in the first place. They're like, you can't have our temple. Um, but, But... when it was destroyed, it left the Jewish, the Jewish, Jewish, wow, religion having to restructure everything about how it did what it did and how it, how it represented what it was about. It was actually after the temple was destroyed 
Uh, that the concept of rabbis and rabbianic schools really took off. See, in the Bible, we get Jesus, uh, and he's being called something called a rabbi, which means a teacher. But it's actually a kind of weird word to use for Jesus uh, in, uh, at that time, because it later meant teacher. But actually, actually at that time when, of Jesus, it had actually come to represent the, um, um, something a little bit different. After AD 70, it was the thought leaders, it was the, it was the people that we would think in the Jewish tradition. It comes from the word rav, uh, is, is, is the Hebrew word. And uh, what, what it meant was actually, it meant numerous or master. And uh, it's, it actually referred to somebody who owned a slave was one of the things that it was described as, uh, or it was a government official. It was not a formal title for teacher until the temple was destroyed. Those were actually called sages before the temple was destroyed. Uh, so, but the thing that's so fascinating about it when you read the stories of Jesus, and then, and then you read what later becomes of the Jewish rabbis, they actually do almost the exact same thing that Jesus did. He really set this amazing, uh, this amazing pace. He'd taken this model of a sage and, and kind of expanded on it. And then when they had to create rabbi schools and travel in schools, they did it just like how Jesus was already doing it and how he's already discipling people. Now, the reason that I even mention any of that is because what took place when the temple was destroyed was it rearranged everything. See, to them, they believed that the connection to God had been lost when the temple was destroyed. But when you see things, even in their tradition, and the, and the way that, that the things that that loss sparked for them, it's not hard to see the way that the broken things don't necessarily mean the end. In many cases, they actually mean the beginning. Mm. See, the, the New Testament writer Paul talks about our bodies being the temple of the Holy Spirit. He says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he, he talks about it uh, while there still was a temple. See, so it's one thing to talk about where the temple after the temple had been destroyed, but Paul was actually writing this, and Jesus actually said a few things about this too, saying, hey, actually, we're the, our bodies are the temple. Now, that would probably sound crazy to people who have this temple. It's like there's one tangible place that you go to worship God, and that's the temple. It's a physical, real-life place that they could go. But when it was destroyed, suddenly those words started to make sense. See, it had been true since the Holy Spirit fell. Our bodies are the temple, but the concept finally made sense. Oh, God doesn't just live there. God lives here. God lives in me. The spirit of the living God lives in you now. And he lives in me. And you can carry him into all the broken places today. And you can, uh, you can allow a restorative work to be done in your midst, in the middle of all the struggles that you might be facing today. Because God is with you in all of it. And he's with you as you respond to circumstances and you're being guided by the Spirit as you're working toward tikkun olam, this, this phrase that we for so, uh, for, have been talking about for the last few weeks, as we repair the world. As we repair the world uh, and we work to fix the world, we actually get to do that knowing that the Spirit of the living God is living in us and he's working through us in every moment, which is the only thing that makes any of that possible. But everybody has something we all do. We have some skeleton in our closet, some story that we hope nobody ever hears, something that we think will prevent us from being that person, will prevent us from being a person who can repair things. And, and if we're not careful, those are the moments in life that can define us. And, and we can allow the things that we've done wrong to be the very things that we let the enemy use against us. 
to convince us that we're not qualified for the mission God's called us to or that God can't use us. Uh, there's a moment early on in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 2, uh, 13, and he talks about how Israel has forsaken God. And it, it says this, it says, For my people have committed two evils. One, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that could hold no water. Now, it's actually fascinating because what it says is they've forsaken the fountain of living water, which uh, in Jewish tradition, in Jewish literature, typically water represents wisdom and living water typically, or living water we later find out uh, from Jesus, or from John, when Jesus talks about it, that he's talking about the Holy Spirit. So when they've forsaken the living water, it says, it says they've forsaken the living water and instead they've dug out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can't hold any water. Now, a cistern is the Hebrew word borat what the word borah is, is, is a, a hole that's dug in the ground uh, to fill, and you fill it with water, and you plaster in this hole to make it watertight so the water kind of stays in this, in this hole. But when the plaster would crack, because sometimes it cracks, the cistern then became unusable. Now, this metaphor was great when describing Israel, who had consistently exchanged the glory of God for something fleeting or something worthless, like the golden calf, like we've talked through so many times. What, 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 what this is saying in Jeremiah is he's saying, the place you're putting all of your water cannot hold it. The things of this world will always, in the end, leave you empty. But you don't have to keep pouring everything you have into a broken cistern where all of your energy is wasted. God actually wants to do something different. See, when Jesus died on the cross, to all of his followers, in their view, before, before we got three days later, right, to them it was the end of a thing, a dream that was dead, a hope that ended up disappointing, a king that was crucified. It was all the water poured into this container that in the end wasn't strong enough to hold it. But then God did what only God can do, and he resurrected and then after he resurrected, he sent us the Holy Spirit. And he empowered the church for the mission of God. Mm -hmm. And suddenly the entire thing became so much more powerful than it ever had been before. Because that's what the breath of God does. That's what the breath of God can do. It breathes life into broken things and it puts them back together. So back to the temple. At Jewish weddings, there's this moment where they take a glass and they wrap this glass in a cloth and then they stomp on the cloth. And then when they do that, it shatters the glass into hundreds of little pieces that can never, ever, ever be put back together again. And they say that it actually symbolizes the destruction of the temple because, of course, what they believe, and they still do, is that when the temple was destroyed, and when it was lost, that the open connection to God was also lost because to them, the connection between God and the world was the temple. You go there to connect. The temple was that connection. So this glass can never be put back together again. But yet, at a Jewish wedding or in any wedding, they still have cause to celebrate because even in the middle of a broken world, they had found each other. They had come together. They had found something ehad, some unity in the midst of diversity, coming together to become one. And they were able to start something new, something that's worth celebrating with your family and all of your friends. So what you have is you have a broken thing, and yet there's a new thing, mm. a new creation. 
a new unity, a new family, a new hope that together something can be created that will actually tikkun olam, will actually begin to fix the world, that will actually bring God into the world. Because since the temple was gone, again in their view, (laughs) according to their tradition, there now is no place in which people can go and find God. Keep it there. Guys, I want you to understand how you are part of this broken. The temple was destroyed. It was almost as if the little bitty pieces had been sent throughout the earth. And I want you to see how you're one of those almost like broken pieces of humanity and how much you matter in this wholeness of humanity. You and the work that God does through you. Through this temple replacement, there's this sense of the center of where the work of God happens. This is where we do our sacrifices. This is where we learn. This is where we experience God. This is where we're forgiven for our sins. This is where reconciliation happens. This is the center of our religion, of our experiences of God. And when the temple was destroyed, the people were going, then how do we do all of this? Does this mean our relationship with God is over? But then he put this temple replacement theology is all about putting that, all of the things that happen in the temple in you. And that relationship and that restoration and that empowering in you. And through that, there's a a testimony and an influence. And the image of God that we talk about so much is then seen scattered throughout all the earth. Not in a way that it's destroyed, but in a way that it's sent out. And that is the New Testament realization of what Jesus did. Now we can be sent out, and now we can represent God in the world, in the brokenness. Okay, so let's look at the woman at the well in John 4. I'm going to read some bits and pieces, so just kind of follow along. If you're looking in your scripture, um, I'll jump around a little, but mostly throughout. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And the woman says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that this is saying to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him. You would have asked him to give you a drink. And he would have given you living water. Let's talk about it. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get the living water from? They're at Jacob's well. And she's like, This well was Jacob built. Are you better than him? Like, who are you? And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Okay, this is that temple replacement, okay? It's no longer what you discover in the temple. This is now going to happen in you. It's in each and every one of you. Will happen in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, she's not just being lazy. Okay, this is the gift of God. This this brokenness that we're talking about and piecing it back together. The gift of God is that piecing it back together and making beautiful things out of those pieces. This water becoming in him 
him being people, okay? Don't, not only men. Let's not stop it there. I will give it to him. I'll give it to him and it will be in him. God will do a work in you, in your personal self, in the identity of who I am, to eternal life. And this this eternal life, there's something to understand about this. This is the, the eschaton, okay? This is the end of all things. The, the final mission of God has been completed. And when we, when we look toward that final mission of God completed, there is the ultimate wholeness. Every broken thing that frustrates the image of God, that frustrates goodness, anything that, that, that disrupts the function and the flow of, of good things, those things gone and everything whole. So when it goes toward up to eternal life, when we see that wholeness and we live in that wholeness, we're grabbing a hold of the eternal life. This isn't necessarily like, oh, you'll live forever. That's a really kind of distant thought to most of us, thinking about eternity, and it's awesome to think about, but what does it do for you when you think about it? What does it do for you when you realize it? In this life now today, why would we care about it today? Because when we realize what that wholeness is, we can trust and believe in God and we can grab hold of and take it on. when you think about your sin and running from your sin, when you're trying to live avoiding evil or avoiding sin or avoiding brokenness, you're running from something. But when you stop and you live in your wholeness, then you're grabbing hold of that eschaton, of that eternal life and that wholeness. It looks very different when you live your life thinking about, I will be whole someday and I'm gonna live like it. Right? Instead of, I have to stop sinning and I'm going to run from it. Stop running. Stop and engage in what God has for you coming. Okay, this is why what we think of at the end and the mission of God matters. Because we're headed to that. We're already in that. And he's saying, it's welling up in you right now, today. And it's working toward eternal life. That's where what God is doing in you is headed. And then she cries out, give me this water. How does he give her this water? What happens next? First, if you can go to the next one, the truth, the truth. Okay, so Jesus said to her, he's like, okay, you want the water? Okay, go get your husband. And she's like, well, I don't have a husband. Okay, and then he says to her, you're right. You don't have a husband, you have five. And the man you're with right now is not even your husband. I think so often we look at this and we think, shame, burn, oh, he got her, he called her out. It's not what's happening here. <laughs> okay, he, she was honest. I don't have a husband. I have sin, and there was shame. Now, There's something I think that sometimes we don't think about in people's lives when they have shameful things. There's shame for a reason, and that's because it's not whole. And sometimes, and probably very often, this is not an excuse to sin, but this is to understand people. Sometimes our brokenness comes out of things like trauma. Now think about this woman as somebody who maybe was sexually abused as a child. Or maybe her husband, her first husband, beat her. 
Maybe she watched her father murder her mother. I don't know her story, guys. All I know is there's a deep sense of shame that she doesn't even want to tell Jesus, but she's honest. I don't have a husband. I've got some stuff that I'm dealing with, and I'm not whole. If you've got stuff that you're dealing with, I don't care if it's sin or trauma or PTSD or depression or anxiety, it doesn't matter what it is. What matters here is that she spoke the truth. Now, we're not claiming and proclaiming our brokenness. That's not what this is about. This is about let's find the truth and there's a community thing that happens. When we can proclaim, even if it's in our brokenness, our existence, and we'll talk about this in a couple weeks coming up, but when we proclaim our existence, I'm here and I'm broken and that's all I know. Even in your brokenness, there's something that gives you the sense of, I do exist. I am worth something. I can be part of the world. I'm not invisible anymore. There's an invisibility that happens when we get into all this like trauma stuff. And I honestly, having five marriages in itself is trauma. And being with somebody who's not your spouse is trauma. In and of itself, the way, this is just the way that we respond to the brokenness. It's not necessarily by something that we cause. It's just the reality that we live in. And right here is this woman's reality. And Jesus says, what you have said is true. And then he goes on. She's like, okay, you're a prophet. My fathers say we worship here on the mountain. And your people say worship down in the city in the temple. And Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Where are they going to worship? Right here in themselves. Who they are, where they are, in their brokenness, in their wholeness, wherever they are, that's where the worship will happen. Everywhere, spread throughout the earth. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. What you have said is true. For the Father is seeking such people, people like you, who will open up your most broken spaces and say, it doesn't matter, I'm here, I exist, I'm broken, but I'm right here, and this is all my brokenness. Here I am. And you will proclaim that even if I'm broken, I'm here, I'm here and I want to find Jesus. I want to be whole. I want to find wholeness. God is spirit. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Find him right where you are. Admit where you are. Just discuss it. Sometimes when we talk about our brokenness, that begins to make us whole. And when we confess it, not just confession, but just a discussion. We'll talk about this coming up in Job, how Job handled his suffering and just confessed, just discussed it with God. Have you had a conversation with God about your deepest darkness? Have you let other people speak to you and just be in truth? I'm broken. And then what's the other piece to that? The spirit, God is spirit. And then he tells her he's the Messiah. 
And then the disciples come back because they were off getting food. And she left without her jug of water, without a cistern to hold it. She in her own self, in her own admittance of the truth with the spirit of God, she went into town and she proclaimed, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They were hoping the Messiah would come and restore their very brokenness. And then when the craziness of the world, that we would just find God again. Can this be the Christ? He knows everything. They went back to Jesus, these men in the city. All she did was proclaim her truth with the Spirit. He knows my truth. And here I am, broken. Here I am. But he knows this has got to be the Messiah. And they went back to hear for themselves. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did, the truth. He just knows her. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and they stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe. It's a great testimony, but what have you done? You have shown us and brought us to the Messiah with your truth about who you are and who he is. For we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed, he's got to be the savior of the world. He's here to make the world right again. Through my brokenness and my proclamation of I'm broken, here I am, Jesus knew her. And that proclamation is what brought those men. It wasn't what she said about Jesus. They were like, wait a second, whatever he's done for you, I want to know him. I want to meet this man. It's not about what he's done for you, but what he's done for you has drawn me to want to know him, for him to know me. He's gotta be the savior. There's this Eastern philosophy, Kintsugi, We've talked about it once before. I can't even remember. One of our teachers in our team t mentioned it, and I came across it in recent studies. It's this Eastern philosophy about the way the world works and the way that brokenness works. It's uh, 15th century Japanese. Um, this is, it's sort of for the Japanese, it's about the reconciliation of the, the flaws with the accidents of time that, oh, now you have trauma, and oh, now you've lost your youngest child or whatever it is that you experience that makes you just completely broken. And in this philosophy, it's this putting back together when, with gold, when you join back together the pieces with gold. So they use this resin and it's these broken pieces of pottery that once they're broken would be thrown away. But suddenly these people started to realize that, well, we could fix this. And when you fix it with the resin, it's ugly. And it just looks really broken. But then they added gold to this resin. And it became this beautiful work of art because of its brokenness. So much so that the people started saying, 
oh, oops, I broke my vase. Oh, we're going to repair it with gold now. I mean, they were like accidentally on purpose breaking things just to be made into this beautiful work that, that wasn't really discovered until after it was broken and repaired and restored. And restoring this item highlighted the character of the brokenness which is not an understanding that we have in Western thought, but I think we can apply it to the word of God and understand it just beautifully. The process is about this shattered self and the people and humanity and the way that humanity is so broken. And when we find ourselves shattered and broken, the love and respect that we have for others' brokenness is the gold and the resin that holds it together and puts it back together, and then makes it beautiful. And the one, the, in ourselves and in the people around us. So it's so important in this transformation that we recognize in ourselves the brokenness and that we recognize and respect in each other's brokenness, that there's beauty in putting it back together. And this part, it's part of the process. We can't, we can't do it without that love and respect for each other. And these broken and repaired objects are more beautiful now, after, than when they were original whole, just the original piece. And there's something so important to that to help society become more beautiful, beautiful because the beauty came out of the brokenness. Now this isn't to like, let's sin and break things and destroy people so that we can let them be put back together and I just wanted you to be more beautiful. No, no, no. This is, this is taking something that's already broken, the process that we do in that. You're a broken vessel. And, and as we've said today, you can't hold anything when you're broken. The broken cistern couldn't hold anything. But with God's spirit and truth about who you are and that just recognizing your brokenness and that you need wholeness, I mean, if we broke the vase and never said, it needs repair, it would just sit broken or get thrown away as dust. But when we send it off for repair, this is the respect for each other. And when we allow it to be repaired, this is the spirit of God. God is that that golden resin. We're a beautiful story. That woman's testimony in the spirit and truth, was what brought them to Jesus. Your testimony and your brokenness, if you allow it to be truth, even though it hurts, and to be the spirit, then it will be beautiful. And his spirit is that golden resin of this process. So in John 7, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This is not just something that's happening in us anymore. It's something that's flowing out of us. Rivers that we can't contain. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. This is about the spirit. And Drew, you can come back up. We're going to close with this. The truth is, We're all a bunch of really broken people. We all have trauma. The statistics are wild. I mean, if we count the heads in this room, we can put a handful of people together that have some serious trauma that we don't know about because we don't talk about it, because it's really broken. 
You can't go back in time and undo trauma. You can't go back in time and undo sin. Trauma, sin, it's all, we're all kind of categorizing it together in this brokenness because I want you to see, not that trauma is your fault. Please don't see that I'm saying you did something to deserve your trauma. That is not what I'm saying. You didn't do anything to deserve your trauma. But you can't go and undo it. You can't. You can, you can try and repress it, but it's probably going to come out as something like PTSD, where you experience it when it's not happening. That's what trauma does to us. We've all been through stuff. I was talking to James the other day, and he was like, I'm pretty sure like, it doesn't matter how in-depth your trauma is. We all have trauma, and the way you experience a, a light trauma is the same way that you respond to a very intense trauma. We respond to trauma the same, no matter how big or bad it is. We all carry stuff, and we don't realize it. But we can't reduce it or remove it. That's not what we're trying to do here. The love of God can. But what's important in community is that we reconcile it. That you do your part and I do my part. And we as a community, let God come in and by the Spirit and by the truth. Now this isn't like a therapy session where we're going to tell everybody our traumas and we're going to cry and then it's going to be better. But this is something that as you experience things, don't do it alone. Recognize that you exist and allow yourself to heal socially and spiritually. The truth of what we say, the truth of what we recognize our reality is what scoops up the pieces of the broken vase. And in the spirit, as we send off the broken pieces and we present before God, this is who I am. I'm just really broken, okay? He puts them back together. And then you can hold the testimony of who Jesus Christ is, who the God of the universe is, who is a just, fair God. And even in your brokenness, you will be more beautiful than when you are whole because of the work of God, not because of your brokenness, because of us being able to see, I see you are broken, but I see the way God is making you beautiful and making you whole. I see the golden resin. Sometimes it just takes recognizing our brokenness. And when the Samaritan woman asked for the living water from Jesus, he walked her through her reality. And when she proclaimed her reality, said, you've said the truth. And in spirit and truth, in spirit and in truth, she was inspired to worship. So where do I worship? Because my father said this, and you guys say this. Where do I worship? And when he told her in herself, she put down the container that she was collecting water in, and she left it with Jesus. She didn't need a container to scoop out the water anymore because she could contain the water, the spirit. She could contain the testimony of who the God of the universe is. She was no longer the broken cistern that would just leak into the ground, that couldn't scoop anything up. She didn't need the traditional container 
to do the work of God. And out of her broken truth, she worshiped. And out of that worship was her testimony, her reality, like any trauma, any trauma. It was probably trauma. I I suspect the way that society, humanity works, that she had a serious trauma. And this, the many husbands was kind of a response to that. And it's still sin because it's not the way that God ordered things. But that's why we have to fix all the pieces so that we can return back to the created order, which is beautiful. And when he glues it back together, it's good to look at. This isn't an excuse for sin, but it's good to recognize your trauma can't be erased. Your sin can't be outdone. You can try and repress it and you can try and heal from it. You can do your best. There's only so much you can do without God. The true use of your brokenness now moving forward it's already broken or maybe you have brokenness that's going to happen in your life once it's already broken it has to be presented before God her reality this woman's reality was known by Jesus and the way that she was known was the thing that she proclaimed as we come before God and we say I'm just really and he goes I know broken and he holds us by our cheeks says I I just love you I just I want to use you you are beautiful your brokenness I can use that I'm going to put it back together first and you will hold the mighty rushing river of the breath of life that made man out of dust out of nothing there wasn't even hope for life there wasn't even water it wasn't clay it was dust he created out of nothingness He can repair you. Even if you can't find all those tiny little shreds of broken glass that we find like months after we break something, he will find all the pieces and he will fill it in. This wasn't a declaration of her brokenness. This was a declaration of the work of God, of the Messiah. It wasn't her brokenness. The declaration of her brokenness wasn't, I'm declaring the end of my usefulness. Once something's broken, just throw it away. No. It was opening up and allowing God to repair it. The proclamation of Jesus. Kintsugi, it's this repair of these broken pieces put back together and beautiful. It's, it's the transformation. It's the beauty. And after this repair, the value of the object in Kintsugi is greater than the sum of all its pieces. Than the original created object broken whole you repaired by the spirit of God are worth more than you would have ever been worth unbroken that doesn't justify your brokenness but it can make your brokenness so valuable and beautiful don't hide it and repress it and let it eat away at you in the darkest darkness of your days of your nights by the spirit and by the truth. This is our reality. Let's just be real and let God do a thing. We can make ourselves and others, the world, right again. Yeah. Say, I keep thinking of that concept. You just said it. It's the, 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 after the repair, it's, it's this thing that's like, oh, this is a valuable thing, and then it's broken, and now it's like, oh, this is a worthless thing, and then all of a sudden, God comes in, and he breathes new life into it, he breathes, recreates it with gold, whatever, however you want to see it, all of a sudden, 
the value of the object then becomes greater than the sum of all of its pieces. It becomes more valuable than it ever was. I, I love what you were saying a few minutes ago, how the true use is testimony. The true use is what comes out of this moment that now can be a better moment for somebody else. And even though we don't want to be broken, it's the work of God in your life that's beautiful. It's how God, you know, it's like Brian has a shirt on right now. He and his wife both have the same shirt. It says Jesus plus therapy. And, we, and, they, and they talked about how, um, we talked about it in the hall, about how we've, um, we've um, several of us have had to go through a process like that of realizing we, sometimes we, we need each other and we need help. And if you, if you think that you don't, if you think that it's shameful to get help, then you won't get it or you won't speak up. And, and that's the culture that sometimes we've created. You know, the thing that I think of when I think of the, the woman who's been married five times and divorced five times and now is not even, not even gonna get, uh, now is just living with the guy is failure. Like, like if I were her, if I were in her shoes, just the facts that that didn't make it and that didn't make it and that didn't make it and each one of these didn't make it, the trauma of that would literally be like, no matter what happened to me, I just can't do this. I can't make it work. I can't. But Jesus says, no, 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 that doesn't. Listen, I want to create something that is totally different than the whole, than every way that you see the world. In which maybe you view your life as a failure and maybe that didn't go the way that it was supposed to go. But that failure, who that woman who couldn't keep her marriage together, then went and brought her entire town to Jesus. The entire town. Because God repairs broken pieces and when he does that the value of the object becomes greater than the sum of the pieces if you read on in the Samaritan woman's story um, she said you know she's looking for water and Jesus says that there's water that um, this water won't satisfy her for long, basically. And he says, there's a water that'll never leave you thirsty again. And she says, where can I get this water? And eventually he says, you know, I'm the Messiah that you've been looking for, basically. Um, she, brought, she just gets it in that moment. It's like, what did she get that she doesn't have to drink this water? And then she runs and she tells everyone in her city, all the other Samaritan people, if you skip down, she tells them... Um, Actually, first, the disciples come and see Jesus talking to a woman, and they say, oh, why are you talking to this woman? She's a Samaritan, you know. And uh, they say, you look hungry. You must be hungry, Jesus. And Jesus says, I'm not hungry. Something to the effect of, I'm not hungry for the kind of food that you have to offer. I'm not hungry for food right now like that. But I'm sustained by doing the work of my father. And he says that, and he tells the woman this thing about water. And, it, you know, they're similar. Like, she's looking for something that'll sustain her, and then she gets it, that there's something that'll truly sustain her. And then Jesus' disciples come, and they say, you look hungry, you need something that'll sustain you. And Jesus says, I have something that'll sustain me. And it's not that, you know? And then right after that, it says that the Samaritan woman went and told the whole village and that all these Samaritans kept coming to Jesus and they got it. That he was the thing that they were looking for all along that would satisfy him. And that this way that he came to um, enact and show and that we could be connected to is the thing that will satisfy and will really change the world. 
There's a lot of language in scripture that I've noticed this before, I guess, but I noticed it more yesterday listening to some people talk about it. Um, that there's a lot of times in the Bible where people are compared to trees. Like almost every page of the Bible, it seems like Jesus says, you're a tree, or the Bible says, people will be trees, or things like that. And what, I don't know, um, when you think about a tree, uh, it's cool. In Psalm, in the, uh, I think, it, there's a psalm where it says, they'll be planted like trees by rivers of water. Well, a tree planted by rivers of water that will bear much fruit, actually, is what it says. And if that's me, like, I don't have to do much. I'm just sitting there taking it all in, you know? I'm soaking up the water. I'm remaining. Actually, the Samaritan people even said, we get that we need to remain with you. If you read on, I, I highlighted that word because it seems to be a word for me this year. And when you look at someone who's like a tree bearing much fruit, the, the water behind them, it's not necessarily in sight. It's not at eye level like this big, beautiful, massive tree, but it's there, almost secretly nourishing them. Let that be the thing behind us, that we would be abiding, that we would remain, that we would be planted by rivers of water, that the broken vessels that we can sometimes feel like and be, Jesus will pick that up, no matter what you are, no matter what you're carrying. The opposite, I looked it up, the opposite in scripture of these trees planted by rivers of water, it says people who are like chaff, so dry twigs that are blowing around that aren't connected to anything. But in John and in Romans, it talks about how we are grafted into the vine. No matter how messed up you are, even if you're chaff or feel like chaff sometimes, like I can, there's nothing stopping Jesus. All you have to do is want it grafting you into the true vine, receiving, receiving effortless nourishment from him. He'll, he'll bring you in. If you're feeling lonely, he'll bring you in. If you need family, it says he sets the lonely in families. That sounds like grafting something into a vine right there. When you're in family, you just remain. You just abide in that nourishment. That's the same way. Go out this week and just abide, remain in Christ. Know that you are loved and wanted no matter how you're feeling or dry you might be. There's nourishment for you and come talk to us if you ever need anything. We love you guys. Have a great week.